invite you to open your Bibles once again to the book of Genesis. For those who were not here this morning, this morning we looked at Genesis uh, 15 and 16. We went into the life of Abram. Abram was a moon-seeking pagan living in Ur of the Chaldees when God came to him. And the events of our God came to him with a rich promise that he would be their God, that he would grant them a, a land, a people, and ultimately the Messiah would come through him. Those covenant promises had been repeated, and when we picked up the, morning, the passage this morning, about 10 years had passed when God came once again. At this time, Abram didn't, and Sarah did not yet have a child, and um, God repeated the promise. They took things into their own hands, and Abraham was given Hagar as a mistress, and Hagar conceived, had a child, and um, that was not the way of God's promise. When we pick up the reading today in chapter 17, right after that event, another 13 years have passed between the end of chapter 16 and 17. So there is a long period of time in which the scriptures are silent in terms of what occurred at that period of time. And then we have it, Genesis 17, and we'll read the passage, and that will also be the focus of the sermon this afternoon. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. But Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish one covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife... You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed 
and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who's ninety years old, bear a child? Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you and son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes. I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And Abram took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money every meal among the men of Abraham's house. He circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. May God bless both the reading and the exposition of his word. As I mentioned, about 13 years have passed since the events that we examined this morning. Ishmael has been born. Hagar, Hagar has returned to the household and Abraham, Abram is raising Ishmael clearly from the text with the expectation that Ishmael is the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. We have no account of whether or not there was any communication between Abraham, Abram and God during this intervening period. The scriptures are silent. That, of course, doesn't mean that there was none, but neither does it mean there is any. We cannot assume that. The Holy Spirit has deemed it significant to make the next account of God's dealings with Abram, this account of God coming to Abraham, appearing to him when he was 99 years old. Let's look at that together this afternoon as we consider name-changing trust in the promises of El Shaddai. We'll see, first of all, that God reconfirms his promises using a new name. Secondly, we'll look very briefly at Abram's uncertain response. And finally, we'll receive some instruction for Abraham's seed. It's not as apparent in the English translation, but if we were reading the Hebrew, what would be striking is the fact that when in verse 1 it says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. We have introduced to us for the very first time in the New Testament a new name for God. In every previous reference to God in the book of Genesis, we have the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is the common name for God. It means something similar to the English word for God, the transcendent being. And it is the word that you use not just for the God of Israel, but would have been used in that context to describe every God. They are all Elohim. They are gods. And up until now, Abram, God has come to Abram and said, I am Elohim. I am God. 
Implication being, I am the God. But this time, God comes to him, Abraham's 99, 13 years after the birth of Ishmael, and says, I am Elohim, which means God Almighty. El Shaddai is a word that is pretty common in the New Testament. This is the first of 48 occasions in which El Shaddai is used in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it's significant when we stop and think about where Abram is in his life. We mentioned already that God had come to him repeatedly in his promise. This morning we had a, a reconfirmation in Genesis 15 of the covenant promises that were already made 10 years earlier as we had the account in Genesis 12. God has made him a threefold promise. And Abram is in the land. He has left Ur of the Chaldees. He has come to the land. Even when foreign, uh, foreign uh, powers have come to take away Isaac, God has blessed him. They've been able to protect the land. They are living in the land. But the other two parts of the covenant promise do not appear to be fulfilled. Abram, which interestingly means father, Abram had not been a father. And last time we saw that God came to him, and as a result of hearing the promises of God, Abram and Sarah took matters into their own hands. They sought, in, a design, in an attempt to serve God, they sought to arrange that an heir would be born. That didn't work all too well. It created disruption in the household. And now God comes and says, I am El Shaddai, the Almighty God. He repeats in Genesis 17, in considerable depth actually, the promises that have already been made. If we look at Genesis 17 and what's in our passage before us, there's nothing really new that God tells Abram that he has not already said to him at least twice. And yet he comes here repeating the promises, even having, after having confirmed, as we saw this morning with the ritualistic ceremony of the Middle East. God has emphasized in the past his reliability the fact that he is God and he has given his word. But now he comes and he introduces himself to Abram and by introducing himself as El Shaddai, he is essentially saying to Abram, I'm not only reliable, my word is not only trustworthy, but you need to know that I am the Almighty One and I have the power to do amazing things, to deliver on this word in ways that you can't even imagine. You're a hundred. Sarai, your wife is 90. Well, guess what? You're going to have a baby. And that was as startling to Abram as it sounds to our ears. And yet God comes with 
an introduction of himself in terms of his almighty power and his sovereignty. And as we, even as we proceed, it's worth reminding ourselves, if I talked to you about and said, we're going to have a sermon on the sovereignty of God, most of us are inclined to think of that as a harsh doctrine, a difficult doctrine. We want to hear about the love of God, don't we? The grace of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God. And we have a sense that in the midst of all of our difficulties, to have God look kindly upon us, those are the attractive features of God. And to be sure, these are all biblical characteristics of God. And what I'm saying by no means is intended to lessen the import of that. But there's a tremendous comfort in the sovereignty of God, in the almighty power of God. Because what it tells us, what it reminds us, and what it reminds Abram is there is no circumstance, no matter how humanly impossible it seems, that God is not able to overcome. I am El Shaddai. You think your situation is impossible? You're 100, Sarah's 90, you don't have your own offspring together in fulfillment of the covenant promises? Don't worry about it. I'm El Shaddai. I can do what you can't even imagine. And then God proceeds, and we read the passage, and I won't go through in great detail. You will see that the three elements of the covenant are repeated with considerable detail. The word covenant actually appears 13 times in this passage. In verse 4, we have the promise that Abram will be the father of many. I will make you a father of many nations. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Ultimately, the seed of the woman the king of king, will bring forth the king of kings, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, verse 7 and 8, we have, or we have the promise of land, a promise that originally was given in chapter 12. In verse 8, I'll give this land to you and to your seed after you. Now you'll remember from this morning that that comes with a proviso. That comes with the fact that God has already told Abram that he's going to be driven out of the land. He's going to go in exile for 400 years. He's not going to live to see Israel occupy the complete land with the physical description of boundaries as we had this morning. And yet he can be confident that God is going to give him the land. And indeed, not only is the land fulfilled in the short term, in the, or the comparatively short term of a few hundred years in terms of Israel going over the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua and then occupying the territory, the physical land, but we know from the book of Hebrews that we are to see in this not only an earthly country, but a heavenly one. Hebrews 11:6. He, Abram desired a better country, the new heavens and the new earth. And then there is this promise that through Abraham all the world will be blessed. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. In other words, the church, the bride of Christ, will be the center of human history. Now God, even as he gives this promise to Abram, 
reminds Abram that he has not, in the giving of his promise through Isaac, neglected Ishmael or the others. Indeed, he tells Abram, I've blessed Ishmael, and I will make him fruitful. He will mu I'll multiply him succeedingly. He'll beget 12 princes. I'll make him a great nation. But the son of promise, the covenant son, the fulfillment will come through Sarah. My covenant will I establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear at this time next year. Sarah will be the mother of nations, and kings of people will come from her. And ultimately, through that line, what we have here is the promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the defining child of history. We know that to be true, don't we? Also from Paul's 11, or letter to the Philippians, where he says that Jesus Christ is highly exalted and given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what we essentially have in our passage is a reconfirmation of the promises already made. God is clarifying, he's reminding, he's teaching. And Abram's a slow learner. He needs to be taught over and over again. I suspect that this generation of those who follow the Lord are no different. We, too, need to be taught over and over again. There's a couple of aspects of these promises that I want to particularly draw to your attention. Because it tells us something about how God deals with his people. Notice the focus, on the one hand, is on the promise of the covenant to Abraham. And that promise starts with God, and we have that... In verse, six, in verse 4, as we come through the passage, notice there are several as-for statements. God said to him, Behold, my covenant's with you. You shall be the father of many nations. As for me, I'm God Almighty. And the ESV, I, I apologize, I made my notes using the New King James. And in the New King James, they are parallel with as for, and I'm just catching now that the ESV hasn't used the identical as for in each of the four, but we can go back. I wasn't going to use the, the Hebrew words, but in the Hebrew you see a parallelism that we have. So in verse 4, God begins with himself, as for me, and he describes what he will do. God is the source of the covenant. And then we come to verse 9, and he speaks directly to Abram. And he says, as for you, we have that in the ESV in verse 9. God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. So God begins by saying what he will do for Abram. He then comes to Abram and says, this is what you will do in response in keeping my covenant. But you see the covenant blessings already in the Old Testament and even today, as it were, overflows. The covenant's being made with Abram. But then, verse 15, God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, and he describes the blessing she will get. And then in verse 20, as for Ishmael. When we think of God dealing in covenant promises, we understand that Israel in the Old Church Testament, and the church in the New Testament is the focal point of God's promise. We're to understand the scriptures in terms of covenant theology, in terms of the covenant framework that God has placed. 
But as God pours his grace into the covenant, think of it as, as a giant container containing water, and it's as if his grace overflows. God pours the covenant blessings and promises to Abram, and they overflow to Sarah and to Isaac and then to Ishmael indeed, to all the nations of the world today. And that's telling in terms of how God views the world and his dealings with it. God's people who are the bride of Christ are to be the focal point of God's dealings in the world. It's from a very different text, but I was reading not that long ago Dr. James Boyce's commentary on the Lord's Prayer. And I was struck when he dealt with the petition, hallowed be your name. And he suggested that what that really means is that, Lord, use whatever circumstances there are in order that I may bring glory to you. If sickness is to be what your providence has put on my path, use me through the sickness to be a blessing to those I encounter and to give glory to your name. That every time we pray, hallowed be your name, we are asking God to use us to live to his glory and to his honor. As I was preparing for this afternoon, that came to mind from a very different scripture, but really we have this here too. Abraham's being promised not just a promise for his own benefit, he is being promised a promise that he will be used mightily for the advancement of God's kingdom. And so we have in Genesis 17 a summary of the covenant. I will be your God. I'm El Shaddai. I'm the Almighty One. You can trust me. 25 years have passed and I haven't, you haven't seen the full fulfillment of the promises. Don't worry. I'm going to fulfill them even if you don't understand how. And you might laugh within and say, how in the world is it possible? I'm 100, Sarah's 90. I'm El Shaddai. Walk in my ways. Which brings us to what is remarkable, because not only does God reveal himself with a new name, he gives Abraham and Sarah new names. Now there, I'm going to leave aside Sarah. Sarah's name in this, we could spend a lot of time on that as well. That really deserves its own sermon. But let's just focus on Abraham's new name. Abram was known, was defined as exalted father. That was what Abram means. Yet when we are introduced to Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees, he's in his 70s and he has no children. But he goes by the name Exalted Father. I can imagine being a prominent business person. We don't know all the rituals of Oriental business culture, but I would imagine they're not that different than today. Those of you who are in the business world, can you imagine going into the boardroom of a new client? You go around the boardroom and you hand out your cards and you shake hands and you introduce yourself. What's your name? 
My name's Abram, exalted father. How many kids you got? None. Abram's name is an embarrassment to him. You've been living with that name. And now, 13 years ago, things changed. Ishmael is his son. And now as he goes in business, as he goes in the community, now he can go and talk about Ishmael, his son. God comes to him and says, I'm going to change your name. No longer are you going to be Abram, exalted father. You're going to be Abraham. What does Abraham mean? Father of a multitude. Well, now he's right back to square one in terms of his name being an embarrassment to him. He's not lived up to his name. Now, Abram, who finally in the last decade has been able not to have to go through that awkward embarrassment, now he has a new name that says, I'm going to be the father of a multitude. And he has one son, and he's 100 years old. How did Abraham deal with this name change? Humanly speaking, it seems very awkward, doesn't it? Romans 4, 19. Without weakening in his faith, Abram faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, being about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what was promised. Paul tells us about this incident. And what does he highlight? What gave Abram, Abraham the confidence to accept his new name? Not with embarrassment, but with belief. Being fully persuaded that God had power. God is the El Shaddai. He had introduced himself as the God of power, the Almighty One. And what we have here is a shift in Abram's understanding of who God is. I am the El Shaddai. You see, God often uses human and ordinary means to achieve his purposes. That's what Abraham and Sarah were counting on when they arranged for Abram to go to Hagar and have a child with him. And yet here, 13 years later, Abram's understanding that that is not the fulfillment of God's promises. God had more to teach him. God had to teach him that God's ways were higher than his ways. And he teaches him by correcting both Abram and Sarah's name. Not only does he change their name, he also instructs them with a covenant symbol, a covenant sign setting them apart. And we have the instruction that as a sign of the covenant, Abraham is to circumcise all the men in his house, both his children as well as all of his servants. They're all to be circumcised and from this point forward on the eighth day, when a child is born in the household of Abraham, he is to be circumcised, set apart by a physical sign. 
as a reminder of God's covenant, branded as you were. Now, it is interesting to note that within the ancient Middle East, circumcision was common. It was not just something that God is introducing here to Israel. What is unique, however, is that in every other culture at the time, as best we can understand, circumcision was a rite of passage from youth to adulthood. So typically teenagers or just prior to marriage, you would be circumcised. It was, a, it was preparation for marriage and a sign of manhood. By moving it to the eighth day, God is moving and instructing Abraham to say, this is not the fulfillment of the covenant and the sign of the covenant is not a sign of what you yourself are going to be achieve, that you're now a man. This is preparation for your virility. No. Well, God is saying, you're to circumcise on the eighth day. It has nothing to do with the child. It has everything to do with the God to whom you are identifying. That circumcision is like a wedding ring. It's a symbol of to whom you belong. And so, again, God uses something that was not foreign in the Middle East, but he takes that custom and he changes it entirely, thereby instructing Abraham. How does Abram respond? We come to our second point, and we can be brief. Because if your Bible was a red-letter edition, and the Old Testament was covered with the words of God like the New Testament is, 21 of the 27 verses in Genesis 17 are God speaking. We have just a few words of Abram's response. First of all, we see Abram responding with the confusion of his finiteness. Verse 7, Abram fell on his, or 17, Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born of a man who is 100 years old and a Sarah who's 90 years old? Abram couldn't wrap his mind around it. No, note, he did not speak out loud. The scriptures are very clear. He, he laughed in his heart. And in fact, he did so in the context of a posture of worship. He had fallen down on his face before God. I already mentioned the scriptures are silent in terms of, is this God's first appearance in 13 years? Or has ha Abram had regular communication with God and direct communication in between? We don't know. But his first reaction is disbelief, and his second is even continuing to try to see how Ishmael may fit into the equation. Verse 18, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Yes, even in his first response to God changing his name and demonstrating and speaking to his power, Abram is still hesitant. And yet, just a few verses later, we see the fact of obedience. That very same day, we read, he, took, he was circumcised in all the people of his house. He didn't waste any time. We have the testimony of 
Paul in Romans, as we read earlier from Romans 4, he believed. It was a process. It wasn't instant. As I mentioned this morning, the scriptures are very real and honest. God's people often go through struggles. We do a great disservice to the gospel when we pretend that the gospel comes and that we just should receive it and there are no questions and there are no belief. No. We're dealing with the reality of brokenness in our lives, and there are many questions. And save for the Holy Spirit making it clear in our hearts, we cannot understand the gospel. And so even if this afternoon you are hearing the gospel and you're filled with questions, and you say, wait a minute, these old stories of thousands of years, they, they seem so out of touch. A hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old wife having a baby and then circumcising a whole tribe in order to, for God to establish his identity with them. It all seems so countercultural, so out of touch. God comes to you this afternoon and he says, I'm El Shaddai. I don't expect you to understand everything. Abram didn't understand everything right away either. As a matter of fact, when the covenant promises came, he partially obeyed, but he sinned. We haven't gone through we've already, uh, all the passages, but already in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 12, beginning of Genesis 13, at the first sight of famine in Israel, after he leaves Ur of the Chaldees already many years ago, he goes to Egypt to find food. Well, hadn't he just come to Israel because God said, I'm giving you this land? But the minute famine comes, he goes to Israel, Egypt to find food, and he ends up in the palace. And then he realizes Sarah's beautiful and the king might want her, so he, he abandons her. He says, just tell the king you're my sister, because otherwise he might kill me. Oh, the story of Abraham is not a story of of obedience at every step of the way. And we see that again, don't we, in our text? Not only did Abram and Sarai take things into their own hands in arranging for the birth of Ishmael, but here we are 13 years later, even after God repeats the covenant promise, and Abram still comes back to God and says, Oh yes, God, don't worry about it. I've taken care of it. May Ishmael live before you. God has to correct him. And God says, yes, I know you love Ishmael. And my blessings will come to Ishmael too. And he speaks of the great things that God will do also through Ishmael. But he says, Ishmael is not the son of promise. Isaac is the son of promise. It is through Isaac, through the Messiah. Ultimately, it is only through Jesus who is the only way, the truth, and the life that salvation can be achieved. And Abraham believed. And it took a little bit of time, but that very same day, all of the male members of Abram's household, including Ishmael, received the sign of the covenant. Well, what do we take from all of this? How are God's children instructed? Abraham's seed instructed. Well, we already saw that this morning, and it continues this afternoon, doesn't it? God's timelines are so different than ours. We have a problem and we want the solution. 
We bring our problems to prayer and God and we expect Him to answer on our timeline. It doesn't always work that way, does it? Why is that? Well, certainly the covenant framework that's given here over and over again in the book of Genesis is there for our instruction. It's not about us. It's about God and His promises. God made the world for His glory. We talked this morning about the difference between a four-chapter gospel and a two-chapter gospel. The most important thing in the world is not, first of all, that you are saved. The most important thing is that God is glorified. And God is glorified through your salvation. But the purpose of your salvation is the glory of God. God desires and God in covenant has come to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, and then all the way through history and even to the church today, bringing together a bride of Christ who can live in perfect communion with him. This isn't a a fast food restaurant plan. God has his own purposes, his own timelines. And one of the first lessons we learn, even as we go through the scriptures, is to submit to the timelines of God. Understand, secondly, that even though we don't understand timelines, we can take comfort from the fact that God understands that we don't understand. It's a good thing we're not God, isn't it? Can you imagine? Comes with these promises, he defends Abram, and gives these promises again and again, and Abram still. Oh yes, God, I've got it all taken care of. Ishmael, no. Let's not be too hard on Abraham. Has God not come to you time and time again with the gospel? Has God not come time and time again also with the instruction of his word to be holy as he is holy and has brought to mind things that we ought to do to love God and the spirit puts those in our heart and what happens? We're filled with resolve when we read the Bible or when we're in church and we're convicted and we walk out of those doors. By Tuesday afternoon, we can't remember what's going on, what we committed to. We are so zealous at our times of piety, aren't we? And how short does it last? Oh, take comfort from your word because the promise isn't based on Abram's obedience. I am El Shaddai. The promise is based on who God is. What a comfort for you and I, even this afternoon. Even in the midst of the fact that we mess up time and time again. I suspect if I went up and down the rows and I asked each of you to recount something of your own spiritual journey. There's a time... For those of us, and I'm assuming here, I don't know this congregation, I'm a guest here, but I'm assuming that most of you have a history with the gospel. This isn't the first time you're in church. You've heard the gospel many times over. Most of us have been taught by our parents 
to pray when we're children. And yet, isn't it true, even if we believe the gospel, even if it's able to be said of us, as it was be able to be said of Abram as we read this morning, he believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. Oh, what a comfort God sees Abraham as fully righteous, as if all the obedience that the Lord Jesus Christ would do, Abraham himself had done. And when God looks at Abraham here, he doesn't see him as a guilty sinner. He sees Abraham in Christ. But in order to see Abraham in Christ, Christ it has to be absolutely ironclad, certain that Christ is going to come. Otherwise, it's, it's like cashing a check that doesn't have the money to back it. How does Abraham know that God has, so to speak, the money to back the check of his promises? I am El Shaddai. I am the Almighty One. God reveals who it is. It's as if God shows Abraham his bank account of divine capacity to fulfill his promises and to see Abraham all the way through. God understands our frame. And so he comes patiently dealing with that and he remains true. Final takeaway. We are inclined to think of the covenant, especially in the New Testament, and I'm going to make some presumptions about the practices of this church that it's not that different from Reformed and Presbyterian churches. Child is born, and sometime a few weeks later, the child will be brought by their parents, and they will be baptized, and it will be the promises, and chances are you'll even have a sermon on how baptism has replaced circumcision. And well, how we use these opportunities to remind and to instruct us in the covenants. But the danger is that we come to see the covenant as a transaction. Something that happens at baptism. Almost a deal that is made. But those are the covenant ceremonies. They're not the covenant. Just as a sign that says Cambridge 20 miles ahead doesn't give me much indication of what Cambridge looks like. All I see is a sign with words and letters on it. I've got to get past the sign and I've got to go the 20 miles and I've got to drive in Cambridge in order to get a sense of the landscape, don't I? Well, so it is with God's covenant. Yes, we have the wonderful promises we have the sign and the seal even of baptism where the water is sprinkled signifying the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that can wash us from all of our sins. And the sign and seal is put on our forehead almost as, like I say, a wedding ring indicating the fact that we belong to God. We are part of his family. The covenant isn't an event, it's a way of life. It is understanding who God is and who we are in relationship with him. Most often, Genesis 17 is preached in the context of baptism. 
and God's covenant promises. And that's entirely valid. But I think, and well, the point I want to bring you this afternoon by treating Genesis 17 not as something to be taken out of the Old Testament and tied to the New Testament in terms of the continuity of the covenant, but to be put in its Old Testament context of the life of Abraham. Because what we see here is God instructing Abraham as to who he really is and how Abraham is to live before the face of God. God's promises are not a moment in time. They are a way of life. And we can live faithfully in that way of life knowing they come from El Shaddai. Living in the promises recognizing, recognizes our finiteness and our dependence. God says to Abraham, Behold my covenant. It, it, sorry, I can't find the verse right now. Walk before me and be blameless, he says. Sorry, verse right at the beginning there. Verse, verse 1. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Tied directly to El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. This is who I am. What's the consequence? Walk before me and be blameless. Trust the promises of God. I don't know your circumstances. We're about to finish worship for another week. The Lord's day is soon over and you will all go back to the routines of your daily life. Will you walk in the face of El Shaddai, confident that God, the Almighty One, the One who has promised His Word and will certainly complete it, is also your God? Can you say with Abraham, I believe? And it was counted to me for righteousness, not on the basis of my faith, but on the basis of what Christ has done. If that's the case, blessed are you indeed. And if that's not the case, there's someone in church this afternoon who says, I've heard the gospel so many times that, you know what, to be honest with you, it's a good book and helps you live a good life, but I'm not so convinced. Let me... Let me bring you the gospel this afternoon. It's freely offered to you in the midst of all of your challenges. The God who is the Almighty One who can make a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman have a baby in fulfillment of His promise. Who thousands, millennial ago, made His promise and saw it all the way through, through all the events of history, his promises come true. That God comes to you this afternoon and says, I will be your God. Trust in me. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be blameless. And I will provide for you, even as I have for Abram. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, most holy, we come. Having opened these Old Testament accounts of Abraham, who lived millennial ago, in a world so different than ours, with customs and circumstances so foreign to our ears,
And yet, Lord, with the common humanity that we share, born by nature in need of grace. Abram, having been in Ur of the Chaldeans, having, come to, having had God come to him with the promise of the gospel, covenant promises. Lord, we have traced something of the line of those covenant be- promises being fulfilled over the first 25 years of his life. Lord, we see how, how weak Abraham is. Lord, if it depended on his faith, it depended on his consistency, if it depended on his obedience, there is no hope for Abraham. And yet we know from your word that Abraham is even today with you in glory. Lord, when you come again, Abraham will be restored to his body and will live in this new heaven and this new earth with you. Lord, the gospel you promised to Abraham, you brought to us this afternoon. Oh, work mightily with your spirit. Convict us of our need of a savior, but Lord, have that grace overflow from, from the fountain. Oh Lord, there is abundant grace with you. We praise you for the glory of the gospel. We pray, be with us, forgive that which was sinful also in our worship. Keep us all from an unprepared death. Be with us as we go from this place. And Lord, grant us also a holy anticipation for that day when sin will be no more, when our faith will be sight, and we will worship you together in perfect communion. O Lord Jesus, come quickly. Maranatha. Amen.